Threads from the National Tapestry is now on YouTube. Search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On the channel, you'll find full podcast episodes paired with relevant photos and maps about each topic. It's another great way to listen to the show. To search for Threads from the National Tapestry on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. Back in December of 2018... We told the story of an engagement that took place along the banks of the Rappahannock and highlighted some stories that took place afterwards. Now, five years later, we return to that story, but with greater detail and the addition of first-person accounts. Once again, we would like to take you back to November and December 1862, when yet another federal commander wanted to drive on Richmond. But in order to do that, had to take a sleepy little town located almost halfway between the southern capital and Washington City. Once more, we return to stories not only about men in battle, but common soldiers showing compassion for one another. Yes, even for those deemed their enemy. These are the stories that comprise the Battle of Fredericksburg. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. It had been cold, there had been snow, and like the fog that covered Fredericksburg, Virginia, there was great mystery as to what November and December 1862 would bring. The town of some 4,500 that sat beside the Rappahannock River brimmed with history. It was here that a young George Washington roamed and others whose names were linked to America's War for Independence, Hugh Mercer, John Paul Jones, and James Monroe. At first, Fredericksburg was a tobacco export town, but after the War of 1812, its fortune sank. However, in the mid to late 1850s, the building of mills brought a return of good times. But now... In the midst of civil war, its location, some 51 miles north of Richmond and 52 miles south of Washington City, made it a military target. Both sides wanted to control the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad, which ran nearby. The events that put this town in the crosshairs of war began in November of 1862, some 40 or so miles to the northwest. It was November the 7th. Around 11.30, on a snowy evening, when there was a knock on the tent pole of the commander of the Army of the Potomac, Major General George B. McClellan. The general, who was in the process of writing his wife a letter, stopped and invited War Department Brigadier General C.P. Buckingham and the Army of the Potomac's Ninth Corps commander, Major General Ambrose E. Burnside, inside. The latter looked uncomfortable. Buckingham appeared stern, like he was on a mission. And in truth, he was. 
In rather short order, Buckingham delivered General Order Number 182, the order to remove George McClellan from command. Little Mac later noted, I saw that both, especially Buckingham, were watching me most intently. I read the papers with a smile, immediately turned to Burnside and said, Well, Burnside, I turn the command over to you. They soon retired. Of course, I was much surprised, but as I read the order, I am sure that not the slightest expression of feeling was visible on my face. They have made a great mistake. Alas, for my poor country. I know in my inmost heart she never had a truer servant. Do not be all worried. I am not. I have done the best I could for my country. To the last, I have done my duty as I understand it. With that, Ambrose E. Burnside now took over command of the Army of the Potomac, and he knew well that he was selected because George McClellan would not confront the enemy. He knew he would have to, and soon. It was a daunting responsibility and one that would rob him of sleep and make him physically sick. It didn't help that throughout his life, fate always seemed to betray him. Back in autumn of 1847, a story which seems to capture his misfortune, his career, perhaps his life. He was on a steamboat leaving Cincinnati when he was invited to play Euchre, a card game. At about the same time, another man indifferently agreed to play. At first, Burnside won, but that changed. He lost one, two, three hands, and by the time the boat reached Louisville, the man who hailed from Liberty, Indiana, was wiped out, the victim of a hustle. We know him for the most part, the luxuriant mutton chops that framed his face. And up to this point in his military career, his name was known for a bridge over Antietam Creek. We should note that he had enjoyed some success in North Carolina at Roanoke Island, New Bern, and Fort Macon. But never was he in charge of so many and charged with such great expectations. The fourth of nine children, he was born a Hoosier in 1824, and even that was a challenge, for upon birth, he would not breathe until he was tickled on the nose with a feather. Grown, his father had some political clout, as evidenced by 45 Indiana state legislators who signed Burnside's petition for candidacy to West Point, like Hiram Ulysses Grant, who became Ulysses Simpson Grant, there was an administrative glitch when the Hoosier arrived. Instead of Ambrose Everett's Burnside, he found his name on roll as Ambrose Everett Burnside. And like Grant, he chose not to correct the mistake. There at West Point, he was not a model cadet. As a plebe in 1843, he received his first demerit, on the morning of the third day he was there. He got it for seating himself at breakfast before the command was given. By June 1844, of 211 cadets, he, after amassing a whopping 198 demerits, was 207th in general conduct. For the record, cadets who were 209th, 210th, and 211th were dismissed. 
In the second year, Cadet Burnside amassed 133 demerits. He trimmed it down to 69 in his third year, but that number ballooned to 190 in his fourth year. He was well known at a local tavern, which, of course, was not where cadets were supposed to be. He was there so much the owner reportedly drank toast to the three men he admired the most, St. Paul, Andrew Jackson, and his favorite customer, Ambrose E. Burnside. Despite his inability to discipline himself, he graduated 18th of 38 in 1847. Just for a note, his roommate, future Confederate General Harry Heath, graduated dead last. Burnside chose the artillery and headed for the Mexican conflict, but arrived in Veracruz after hostilities had ended. With the conflict at end, he spent time in garrison duty around Mexico City. And there, with far too much time on his hands, he gambled. And by spring of 1848, owed six months' pay. In other words, his Mexican War experience was little to write home about. A few years later, in 1851, his attempt to marry Kentucky Belle Charlotte Moon ended at the altar. When the minister asked if she would take this man Ambrose as your lawfully wedded husband, she answered, No siree, Bob, I won't. Maybe his luck changed when he resigned from the United States Army and invented a breech-loading carbine. But a federal contract fell through, and the Panic of 1857 broke him. One in particular reached out to him, gave him work. It was George Brenton McClellan. Personally, Ambrose Burnside was friendly. He remembered names but could be obstinate, unimaginative, and he would be the first to admit not suited for overall command intellectually or emotionally. After three refusals to take the Army of the Potomac's top position, he finally accepted because if he didn't take it, command would be offered to Major General Joseph Hooker, a man Burnside considered an intriguer. No less a military man than U.S. Grant later wrote of Burnside. He was an officer who was generally liked and respected. He was not, however, fitted to command an army. And no one knew that better than himself. According to his biographer, William Marvel, whose 1991 work was simply entitled Burnside, Maybe it had to do with something about his Quaker background, but Burnside's greatest flaw may well have been his own honest, humble, and trusting manner. Then again, maybe it was something in his blood. In 1746, his great-great-grandfather sided with Bonnie Prince Charles when the Scots were crushed at Culloden Moor. Like many Highlanders, the family was relocated to South Carolina in colonial America, and it was there during the American War for Independence they sided with the Loyalist faction. Genuine modesty may have been, sadly, one of his worst flaws. The morning after he assumed command, he confessed to Brigadier General Orlando Wilcox, I do not feel equal to it. Even in his first order to the men, he expressed diffidence about his ability. The responsibility he inherited was a crushing burden. He anticipated great difficulties. As we've mentioned, nights were filled with troubled sleep, 
And to anyone who would listen, he insisted he was not the man for the job. No matter. Now he was the man and was expected to strike a mortal blow to those who rebelled against the United States government. On Sunday, November the 9th, he officially assumed command and made nearly deserted Warrington, Virginia, his headquarters. And on that same day, fully aware that Washington wanted a plan, and with General-in-Chief Henry Halleck badgering him about it, Burnside complied. He communicated he would make a feint toward Culpeper or Gordonsville in central Virginia, then move rapidly toward Fredericksburg, and from there get astride the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad and move toward Richmond. That being done, Lee would have to pursue, and Burnside could then turn and offer battle on ground of his own choosing. And to calm constant fears about an unprotected Washington city, he stressed his route would simultaneously shield the capital and his supply line. The new commander went on to list his subsistence needs and made the point of requesting pontoons that would be transported to assist the Army's crossing of the Rappahannock River at Fredericksburg. On paper, the plan had promise. Now it had to be approved. Meanwhile, Burnside reorganized the Army. He divided it into grand divisions. Cautious and uninspiring Major General William B. Franklin would command the left Grand Division, which included the 1st and 6th Corps. Franklin had graduated at the top of his West Point class in 1843, but he was a McClellan man. A capable engineer, he would lack enthusiasm in the coming campaign. The 3rd and 5th Corps of the Army of the Potomac became the center Grand Division. And the two corps were placed under troublesome Major General Joseph Hooker. One must wonder why he, for whom Burnside was so wary, was given such an important command. In the coming campaign, Hooker would be downright insubordinate. Command of the right Grand Division fell to 65-year-old Edwin V. Sumner. That unit included the 2nd and 9th Corps. Unlike Franklin and Hooker, Sumner gave unwavering loyalty to Burnside, but that quality was compromised by limited ability and questionable health. Quite honestly, from the start, the reorganization was flawed. With Grand Divisions, Burnside would have less contact with Corps commanders and even more importantly with Division commanders. His new organization also scattered his mounted and artillery branches, and that would create problems. Another issue, Burnside also reduced the size of his adjutant general's staff. That proved unwise, for the reduction meant communication and staff work became unwieldy, more complex. Despite all this, Burnside's plan, which was not embraced by Halleck and received lukewarmly by the president, was approved. Anxious to move, the advance began at 5 a.m. on Saturday, November 15th, while supply line rails from Alexandria to Falmouth, a town right across the river from Fredericksburg, were still being repaired, and his request for urgently needed pontoons was ensnarled by administrative mumbo-jumbo. Yet, four abreast, 
each soldier carrying 40 to 50 pounds and moving at about two and a half miles an hour, Sumner's right grand division led the way. Averaging about 15 miles a day, the forward elements reached Falmouth Monday, November 17th. They had marched 40 miles in two and a half days. Despite weather, doubts, and other issues, Sumner's vanguard had moved quickly, and now at Falmouth, they were right across the Rappahannock from their objective. Now, that being said, cold and rain and the timeless military bane, mud, slowed those coming behind, and not only men, but supply wagons. The unchristian weather meant long days of marching in wet and sticky mud and subsistence on short rations. General exposure plagued common soldiers, and to add to their misery, there was diarrhea, neuralgia, and for the older soldiers, rheumatism. Still, the Army moved like it had never moved before. By November 18th, the 1st Regiments of the Left Grand Division reached nearby Stafford Courthouse. And on the same day that Sumner's advanced elements reached Falmouth, the Center Grand Division was also on the move. The entire Union Army of the Potomac, 121,402 men and 312 guns were on the east bank of the river by Thursday, November 20th. Across the watery barrier that day, a Confederate presence that consisted only of four companies, one cavalry regiment, and one battery of light artillery. Lee's 1st Corps under James Longstreet was 30 miles away, and Jackson's 2nd Corps was further away, still up in the Shenandoah Valley. The Northern Press in Washington City, however, noted Burnside's rapid movement, but with that came expectations. Southern Northern Energy did something else. It alerted the Army of Northern Virginia. Jeb Stewart's cavalry probed, and Lee, though uncertain of Burnside's true intent, alerted Stonewall Jackson to be ready to march toward Fredericksburg or a point on the Rappahannock at a moment's notice. When the Confederate commander learned Sumner's men were approaching Falmouth, he, on November the 17th, ordered the divisions of Major General Lafayette McClaws and Brigadier General Robert Ransom Jr. to head for Fredericksburg. Lee did this as a precaution, for, quite honestly, at this point, he was still not certain the rest of the Union Army was following Sumner. To counter several Union possibilities, Lee proposed to Jefferson Davis that he be allowed to fall back to a strong position across the North Anna River. But the Confederate president did not support this. And as more intel flowed in, Lee finally became certain that Fredericksburg, was Burnside's intended objective. McClaw's Confederates reached the town about noon of the 20th, as did Lee. Ransom's division arrived two days later. By Sunday the 23rd, Longstreet's remaining three divisions under Major Generals Robert H. Anderson, George Pickett, and John Bell Hood were in the vicinity, all in all about 40,000 men. With this development, Burnside's advantage of surprise disappeared. Spattering of fire between contesting forces began as early as November the 15th. Burnside arrived in person on the 19th. But let's highlight November the 20th, when Burnside's entire force was on the eastern bank of the Rappahannock. Before them, 
with bridges destroyed earlier, an unspanned river, and no pontoons. Despite the situation, Sumner wanted to cross the river and engage. He had pushed that idea from the time he had arrived back on the 17th, but Burnside would not allow it. He feared rain and melting snow would most certainly raise the river's water level, and the Army of the Potomac commander did not want one-third of his army isolated. Though heavy federal guns on Stafford Heights would have kept Longstreet's force at bay, the Union Army commander wanted to wait for the pontoons. Hooker wanted his center grand division to cross the Rappahannock upstream, above Fredericksburg, where he might hit Longstreet in flank and rear. But again, Burnside said no. And that spurred the inevitable. Completely ignoring chain of command, the feisty Hooker sent his idea straight to Washington City and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Hooker wanted his 40,000 men to cross before Jackson's 2nd Corps arrived. Washington reminded the troublesome Hooker that Burnside was in charge. But the commander of the Grand Center Division, by this act of insubordination, was planting seeds. What was missing, what was desperately needed, were the pontoons. Some six bridges were required to get the army across. Back at a meeting on November the 12th, between Burnside, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, Herman Hopped, who had field command of the United States Military Railroad, and Quartermaster General Montgomery Meigs, Burnside believed pontoons would be on their way from Berlin, Maryland, to Washington City, where Halleck would then make certain those same pontoons would be forwarded to Falmouth. Burnside wanted him there when the Army first arrived. Brigadier General Daniel P. Woodbury, West Point graduate and veteran engineer working with Hopped, shared in the responsibility of getting the pontoons where they were needed. Much later, Halleck, after the December 13th battle, claimed it was not he but Burnside who was to issue orders to Woodbury about the transportation of the pontoons. In fact, orders had been sent to move pontoons from Berlin to Washington City back on November the 6th. But incredibly, they had been sent through the regular U.S. mail and did not reach Berlin until the 12th. And with no note of urgency, little was done when the orders arrived. Essentially, a lot of folks assumed someone else was responsible for getting the desperately needed pontoons from Berlin to Washington City, then to Falmouth. And to repeat, when word came to those charged with the actual transportation of the needed pontoons, no one seemed to place any sense of urgency about it. So, Burnside's assumption that pontoons would be there when Sumner's men arrived was sadly fatally mistaken. When finally they began their journey, one train of pontoons was to arrive via water, the other overland. Miscommunication, misunderstanding, shifting responsibility, horse and harness problems for the overland teams that would pull the heavy boats and equipment, the lack of urgency, all those factors paved the way for disaster. Much to Burnside's displeasure, he learned that the overland train's departure would not even leave Washington City until the afternoon of November the 19th, 
The day Burnside arrived at Falmouth and two days after Sumner's men had arrived. And to further muddy the waters, Woodbury advised Halleck to delay Burnside's departure for five days to allow more time for transportation of the pontoons. But according to Woodbury, Halleck dismissed the notion. No one completely discussed the matter with Hopped and Meigs. And no one in the capital seemed to grasp the importance for timely arrival of the pontoons. Their importance in the success of the campaign was never made clear. We do know this. Burnside timed his departure based upon Woodbury's promise to him that 36 pontoon boats would leave Washington City on November the 16th or 17th. Yet on the eastern bank of the Rappahannock, an entire Union army waited while a logistical snarl unglued an uncertain commander and contributed mightily in a coming military debacle. It was a frustrated Burnside on Saturday the 22nd who passed along a strong but carefully worded letter to Halleck in Washington. He wrote, I cannot make the promise of probable success, with the faith that I did when I supposed that all parts of the plan would be carried out. The president said that the movement, in order to be successful, must be made quickly, and I thought the same. True to form, Halleck denied responsibility for the absence of the pontoon boats and suggested that Burnside hold Woodbury accountable. Finally, on Monday, November 24th, the first pontoons arrived at Falmouth. The rest straggled in on the 27th, 10 days late, according to Burnside's timetable. Their delayed arrival served as a catalyst for Union discussion. Sumner wanted to use what was available and cross, but Burnside, not certain where Jackson's Corps was, decided against any storming of Longstreet's position just west of town. Every delay meant Robert E. Lee had more and more time to gather intel, to analyze Burnside's true intent, and concentrate his Confederate army, though doing so was going to take some time. As late as November 23rd, Lee, before the move to the North Anna was nixed by Davis, was still moving artillery toward that river, and Jackson's men were still in the Winchester, Virginia area. While Burnside waited and his officers debated, Lee, narrowing down Burnside's options, ordered Jackson to move. That officer's foot cavalry covered 175 miles in 12 days and arrived near Fredericksburg on Wednesday, December 3rd. Yes, several days after the arrival of the long-awaited pontoons, but without them, Burnside had lost his nerve, lost his drive, Indeed, lost the initiative. Meanwhile, Lee, with 78,511 men and 275 guns, continued to concentrate. It is interesting to note that when the Confederate commander learned that Burnside had taken command, Lee said to a comrade, I fear they may continue to make these changes till they find someone whom I don't understand. Though Burnside had stolen a couple of days' march on him, the gray fox was putting the military puzzle together fairly quickly. On Friday, the 5th of December, there was rain, then sleet, 
and several inches of snow. The next day, with snow on the ground, there was bitter cold. On Sunday the 7th, the temperature dipped to the lower 20s, and the next morning the thermometer read 16. Despite the cold and lack of overcoats and shoes, southern soldiers, particularly from those deep south, reveled in the wintry weather. It is recorded that Georgians and Texans gathered and proceeded to have a massive snowball fight. Organized in regiments and brigades, they stormed and snowballed one another for hours. The medical staff of the Army of Northern Virginia commented that there were almost as many injuries as a battle might bring. Meanwhile, while chess pieces shifted, some of the common soldiers of each side took advantage of the fact that they were in such close proximity. On Wednesday, December the 10th, a Union band circulated through the federal encampment and played national airs like Hail Columbia, the Star Spangled Banner, and Yankee Doodle. They waited for Confederate response, and when none came from the western bank, the federal band struck right into Dixie. They got their response. Only three days before battle, yes, there was laughter along the Rappahannock. That changed the next day. Burnside ordered the laying of the pontoons to begin at 3 a.m. the next morning, Thursday, December the 11th. At 5 a.m., two Confederate signal guns erupted, and that alerted Lee's army that Union troops, the 15th and 50th New York engineers, had begun their work. To buy time, Lee and Longstreet sent Brigadier General William Barksdale and his 1,600 Mississippians and one battalion of Floridians to the western bank to harass the movement. At first light, through the eerie early morning fog, they opened up on the engineers, forced them to take cover. Their fire exasperated an already frustrated Burnside. So much so that he ordered his heavy guns, 147 of them, in four sections to open fire from Stafford Heights. From 1 to 3 p.m. on the 11th, they fired at least 5,000 rounds into the largely evacuated town. The fire was intense. For the first time in the American Civil War, a town was caught in the vortex of combat. Fires broke out. Walls were breached or battered down. Ninety-eight shells reportedly hit a single residence on Caroline Street. Between 25 to 40 buildings were badly burned. Even houses of worship were not spared. Yet, after the bombardment, when the engineers returned to their work, Barksdale's men rose from cellars and rubble and continued their disruptive and deadly fire. Nine times the engineers were forced back to the eastern bank for cover. At Wits Inn, a request went up for volunteers. Men from the 7th Michigan, the 19th and 20th Massachusetts rode across and began to land on the West Bank. But at a cost, for the 20th Massachusetts lost one-third of its 335 men in the crossing and landing. But once ashore, there began fighting that was similar to that in France during World War II. Street to street, house to house. For the 20th Massachusetts, one 50-yard stretch in town cost the regiment 97 officers and men. Yet, joined by the 89th New York, Barksdale's men began to fall back. 
His men had suffered nearly 30 killed, more than 100 wounded, and 60-plus had been captured. But about 4.30 p.m., when his force was ordered back to the Confederate line at the base of Marie's Heights, they had delayed the Federal crossing by some 12 hours. By 4 a.m. of Friday the 12th, all six of Burnside's bridges were up, and Union troops began to pour across. At their mercy, a defenseless town. Pianos were dragged into streets and destroyed. Clothes were ripped, torn, and worn. Portraits slashed, mirrors and windows broken. Fredericksburg felt the weight of what it was to be in the middle of civil war. By day's end and on the eve of battle the next day, Lee's defensive Confederate line stretched some seven miles, both flanks anchored. With some 78,000 men, his line had some 11,000 Confederates per mile and six per yard. Into that formidable defense, Burnside wanted to strike Lee's right down at Hamilton's Crossing. It was in that area that he wanted to seize the military road which connected the Confederate right with its left, breach the southern line, roll it up. Jackson, who anticipated this, called up his reserves under Major General D.H. Hill and Brigadier General Jubal Early. Jackson, dressed in a brand new uniform in Kepi, a gift from Jeb Stewart, was actually excited about the possibility of being attacked. He believed his line strong, that it would inflict great casualties. So assured of his defensive line, that all during the day, Friday the 12th, the usually dour officer was seen and heard whistling. Though Burnside knew what he wanted to do, he failed to communicate clearly to his subordinates, and it did not help an already uncertain Burnside that although up in the Capitol, Henry Halleck had been informed of Burnside's tactical plan, Halleck never responded to it. And that deflated the federal commander even more. In the fog, both weather-wise and mentally, Burnside issued his tactical orders at 5.55 a.m. Saturday morning, the 13th. But they were not delivered until 7.45 a.m. In essence, 18,000 men of Franklin's 60,000 were ordered to move against Jackson's 30,047 guns. There, on the southern end of the battlefield that Saturday morning, the sun began to burn the fog away, and it lifted like a great curtain about 9.30. Up on Telegraph Hill, where he made his headquarters, the revealed scene of martial spectacle took Lee and his staff's breath away. Down below, the sun glinting off polished bayonets, Pennsylvanians under Major General George Gordon Meade formed to move forward in parade ground-like fashion. Just behind, Meade's force was supported on their left by Major General Abner Doubleday's division and on the right by a division under Brigadier General John Gibbon. In all, some 8,000 men all advanced on Prospect Hill where Jackson's men made ready to receive them. And yet, as they formed to begin their attack, there was a bloody annoyance. On the extreme southern right, 18 guns under 24-year-old Confederate Major John Pelham. He had left West Point two weeks early 
to join his comrades. From that 18-gun position, he advanced two, a Blakely rifled piece and a 12-pound Napoleon, and around 10 o'clock opened up from 400 yards away. Their fire raked the Federal left. Five Union batteries tried to find Pelham's position and eventually did. 24 guns blasted away at Pelham's advanced position, and despite three requests by Jeb Stewart to fall back, the young Confederate did so only when he began to run low on ammunition. The so-called gallant Pelham knocked Doubleday's division out of the attack and stalled Meade and Gibbons for about an hour. When it did finally come, there was Union good fortune. The Federal attack was aimed at Jackson's defensive line and specifically where A.P. Hill's division had been placed. As of late, the two, Jackson and Hill, had been bickering, both prickly. Hill had called Jackson a crazy old Presbyterian fool. And Jackson didn't care for Hill's lack of attention to detail. And... As details go, there was a problem which both failed to catch and correct. The mistake? A 600-yard gap in A.P. Hill's line. Supposedly low-lying, swampy, covered in undergrowth and considered unsuitable for defense or attack, it provided an open invitation for Confederate disaster. And despite the poor terrain, that's exactly where Meade's 1 o'clock attack struck. James Archer's mixed Confederate brigade, men from Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee, were hit on their left and turned by Meade's men. The right flank of James H. Lane's North Carolinians were turned by Gibbons, and into the yawning space Meade and Gibbons' men poured. Behind the gap, in reserve, a brigade of South Carolinians under Brigadier General Maxie Gregg. In reserve, he had his men stack weapons so as to keep his men from firing into Confederate ranks. But suddenly, men in blue approached, and Gregg, mistaking them as friendlies, ordered his men to stand down. Then a Federal bullet plowed into his side, severed his spine, and he went down. Jackson's line was breached. The Confederate military road was in Union hands, and at that very moment, Lee could not shuttle troops from left to right. But then, Burnside's poorly written orders and Franklin's timidity damned Union success. Literally interpreting the commanding general's order to use only 18,000 men of his 60,000 he had in his left grand division, Franklin, despite pleas from Meade, and there were three of them, sent no reinforcements to either Meade or Gibbon. Stonewall Jackson did not make that mistake. He called up Brigadier General Early's division, and it swept forward at about 1.30. Led by Colonel Edward Atkinson's brigade of Georgians, Colonel James A. Walker's Virginians, and Colonel Robert F. Hoke's mixed brigade from Alabama, Georgia, and North Carolina, a wave of men in butternut and gray hit Meade and Gibbon's division, and without support, both reeled backwards. On they came, punishing Meade and Gibbon's men, driving them back onto the plain below town. Meade was livid. He lost one-third of his division. Ten of his 15 regiments had suffered more than 100 casualties. 
Later, he told his immediate superior, Major General John Reynolds, My God, Reynolds, did they think my division could whip Lee's whole army? Ordered to stop their advance at the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad line, Early's men, in their state of excitement, pushed forward beyond, but in doing so, outran their support. Concentrated federal artillery and infantry drove them back. By about 2.30 in the afternoon, the two sides had returned to places from whence they started, and the battle on the southern end of the battlefield sputtered out. A near disaster had been averted by Jackson, and Meade and Gibbon's initial success wasted. Franklin had taken some 4,830 federal casualties, Jackson 3,415. Still, incredibly, across the Rappahannock, the reality of what had taken place thus far escaped a searching eye. Using a spyglass from a second-story window of his headquarters in the Phillips house, Burnside received information that made him believe his plan was working. So to reinforce his believed success, he gave orders to strike the Confederate left, which was several miles north. The area to be stormed, west through town, across a half-mile open plain, and toward a sunken road protected by a stone wall and heights, that rose some 40 feet behind the roadbed. Marie's Heights was about 800 yards to the west of Fredericksburg, running diagonally across the first fourth of that open plain, a mill race. It was about 200 yards from town and was about 5 feet deep and 15 feet wide. Over that mill race, three small walkways. A few days earlier, Confederates took up the boards from one, leaving only the stringers. On the western bank of the canal, a slight rise which offered some protection. Then 500 yards of open ground. And about 100 yards from the sunken road, known locally as the Telegraph Road, there was another slight elevation which offered a soldier cover, but only if he went to the ground. There were few outbuildings or houses. If the terrain or any building offered protection, it was going to be coveted on this Saturday afternoon, December the 13th. And to add to the unfavorable terrain, any federal assault on the, this Confederate position meant charging over ground that would be carpeted by Confederate artillery. Atop Marie's Heights, some 16 to 18 guns. Though they commanded the field in front of them, a concerned James Longstreet asked his artillery chief if his guns and their crews were up to the challenge. E.P. Alexander replied, Sir, when we open up, a chicken couldn't live on that field. And to add to the killing firepower, just to the south on Telegraph Hill, there were 21 more guns that could fire in flank on any Union assault leaving the protection of the town of Fredericksburg. Below Marie's Heights, elements of Major General Lafayette McClaw's division he had some 2,000 men on line, 7,000 more in reserve. In the sunken road and hunkered down behind the stone wall, a brigade of Georgians under Brigadier General Thomas R. R. Cobb and the 24th North Carolina Regiment from Brigadier General Robert Ransom's Division and Brigade. As the afternoon would wear on and Union attacks continued on this position, the rest of Ransom's brigade, the 25th, 35th, and 49th North Carolina, would join the defenders. 
there, too, would be Brigadier General John R. Cook's North Carolina Brigade. South Carolinians would also move into the sunken road during the afternoon. They were under Brigadier General Joseph B. Kershaw, all protected by that four-foot-high stone wall. In ranks as many as four to six deep, it would be Lee's best defensive position of the war, and many federal officers across the way knew it. When Burnside asked opinion of his attack orders on this position, Colonel Rush C. Hawkins, who commanded a brigade in the Ninth Corps, answered, If you make the attack as contemplated, it will be the greatest slaughter of the war. There isn't infantry enough in our whole army to carry those heights if they are well defended. Surprised and irritated, Burnson turned to Lieutenant Colonel Joseph H. Taylor. Aware of the Confederate firepower that awaited them, that officer said, Sir, the carrying out of your plan will be murder, not warfare. Indeed, across the way, a now-assured James Longstreet told his commanding general that if you put every man in a blue uniform in front of my position and give me enough ammunition, I will kill every one. The sun burned the fog away just west of town around 10 in the morning, and like earlier to the south, it was like the raising of a great curtain on a great stage. Orders were conveyed, and about noon, the slaughter that was Fredericksburg began. The first of seven divisional attacks. The first of 18 brigade attacks. The first fell to Brigadier General William H. French. From town, his men navigated the mill race and reformed under the protection of its western bank. Then they came on as if on parade. His first brigade, under Brigadier General Nathan Kimball, took the lead, and it withered under sheets of murderous Confederate fire. It went to the ground, one-fourth of its number down and Kimball wounded. Next, about 150 yards behind, the brigade of Colonel John W. Andrews. They moved to fill great bloody gaps created by Confederate fire. Andrews went down, wounded. The 10th New York lost nine of its 11 officers, and command shifted through three different officers in less than an hour. Next, it was the brigade of Colonel Oliver H. Palmer. They, too, shot to the ground. Yet some, incredibly, had gotten about 100 yards from the flaming wall, but in short, an entire division, three brigades, were shattered and broken. In the space of about an hour, William French's division had suffered some 1,160 casualties. Now, despite the protection and firepower, Confederates behind the wall did take some casualties. One of them was Brigadier General Cobb. A Union shell exploded overhead, and a fragment severed the femoral artery in his thigh. They got him to the Stevens house, right there along the firing line. But within, he bled to death within the hour. South Carolinian Brigadier General Joseph B. Kershaw now assumed command. Reinforced during French's attack by two South Carolina regiments and the 27th and 46th North Carolina, the Confederates prepared for the next attack, and it came right at about 1 p.m. This time it was Major General Winfield Scott Hancock's division. 
Colonel Samuel Zook's brigade was the first to go in. It got about 100 yards away from the flaming wall. Some from the 53rd Pennsylvania actually got within 50 yards, but like those before, those new attacks went to the ground. Regimental commands shot to pieces. Over 500 casualties, one-third of the brigade. The 57th New York was down to only 50 men. Then attacked a familiar foe. Those under the green banners, the Irish Brigade, five regiments, men from Massachusetts, New York, and Pennsylvania. With sprigs of boxwood in their kepes, some 1,200 men advanced while the fire from the stone wall was so intense that it reminded one soldier of heat lightning. One regiment of the Confederate tormentors was the 24th Georgia, also comprised of Irishmen. And all too aware of the unit it was cutting down, it is said that some of the 24th fired through tears. Despite the waves of lead, it was reported that a few of the Union Brigade got as close to the stone wall as 25 yards. But with 40% of the brigade casualties, the men of Erin, like all those before, went to the ground as well. Colonel Thomas Mars, Irishman, had 545 killed and wounded out of 1,200. Now it was time for Hancock's 3rd Brigade to be fed into the meat grinder. Once a Vermont schoolteacher, Brigadier General John C. Caldwell fed his 2,000-man brigade into the fight. One regiment in that brigade was the 5th New Hampshire, led by Colonel Edward E. Cross. Twice wounded in the battle, he had a premonition this would be his last. Before going into action, he made his will, inventoried his property, packed everything he owned into a trunk, locked it, and gave the key to the regimental chaplain. His unit was on Caldwell's right, and a shell exploded directly in front of him at eye level. This is what he recorded. I was near my colors. A 12-pounder shell burst right in front of me. One fragment struck me just below the heart, making a bowed wound. Another blew off my hat. Another small bit entered my mouth and broke out three of my best jaw teeth, while the gravel, bits of earth, and minute fragments of shell covered my face with bruises. I fell insensible and lay so for some time, when another fragment of shell, striking me on the left leg below the knee, brought me to my senses. My mouth was full of blood, fragments of teeth and gravel, my breastbone almost broken in, and I lay in mud two inches deep. Dead and wounded lay thick around. One captain was gasping in death within a foot of my head, his bowels all torn out. The air was full of hissing bullets and bursting shells, and two lines of the Union attack passed over me, but they, too, soon swayed back, trampling on the dead and dying. Halting about 30 yards in the rear, one line laid down and commenced firing. So imagine the situation. Right between two fires, I covered my face with both hands, expecting every moment my brains would spatter the ground. But they didn't. And the end of my days was reserved for another, and I hope more fortunate occasion. Like all before, Caldwell's brigade was wrecked. Cross's 5th New Hampshire, the 7th New York, and 81st Pennsylvania lost nearly two-thirds of its strength. The 145th Pennsylvania lost over 200. 
Hancock's entire division suffered 42% casualties, the highest divisional loss in any one battle of the entire war. As bad as it had been for French and Hancock's division, at least by the end of the day, they, the survivors, were able to fall back into town. For those who attacked later, five more divisions, few, if any, would be so fortunate to make it back to the protection of Fredericksburg. Second Corps commander, Major General Darius Couch, was in the cupola of the Fredericksburg courthouse. And from there, the horror that was that day played out in front of him. At one point, after two of his divisions had been shattered, he turned to another and exclaimed, Oh, great God, see how our men, our poor fellows, are falling. Indeed, the entire plain was covered with the wreckage of battle. Dead men and horses, blue-clad soldiers falling before Confederate fire. Couch recorded, and there was no cheering on the part of the men, but a stubborn determination to obey orders and do their duty. The slaughter reminded Couch of watching snow fall upon warm ground. Still, orders from east of the Rappahannock demanded more attacks. And so, in rather simultaneous fashion, the last division of Couch's 2nd Corps, Brigadier General O.O. Howard's and Brigadier General Samuel Sturgis's brigade from the 9th Corps went in about 2 p.m. The result's the same. Two new blue waves in the stone wall aflame from one end to the other. Colonels Joshua Owen and Nathan Hall's brigade suffered over 500 casualties. Brigadier General Alfred Sully's brigade lost 122. Sturgis's losses simply ran up the human holocaust. These attacks, as everyone before stalled, shuddered, and then went to the ground. Couch's 2nd Corps had taken nearly 4,000 casualties. Ten brigades had been blasted, and there would be more. Joseph Hooker was ordered to send elements of the 5th Corps under Brigadier General Daniel Butterfield, but Hooker, completely aware that Burnside's plan was in shambles, returned east of the river and tried to convince his commander to end the slaughter. And while he unsuccessfully tried to do such, Brigadier General Charles Griffin's division went in. It was about 3 to 3.30 in the afternoon. And by now, movement in and through the littered open plain was so difficult that Griffin's attacks added to the federal casualty list. Brigades led by Colonels Joseph Barnes, Samuel Carroll, Jacob Schweitzer, and Thomas B. W. Stockton went to pieces. In Schweitzer's brigade, the 32nd Massachusetts lost one of every 10 men in 10 minutes. The hour was now about 5 p.m., Sunlight was fading. Those who might have to attack and those trapped in front of the murderous Confederate fire prayed for nightfall. And yet, thanks to a wildly erroneous report from one of Hancock's brigades that Confederates were falling back, in truth only shifting, an order was given for Brigadier General Andrew Humphrey and his 4,500 men to go in. As those Pennsylvanians, almost all who had never before fired a shot in anger, moved forward, survivors from earlier attacks raised themselves to grab at belts, at pants, anything to pull them to the ground to save them from certain death or wounding. 
forward went the brigades of Colonel Peter H. Alabach and Brigadier General Erastus Taylor. But after 15 to 30 minutes of Confederate infantry and artillery fire, those units suffered some 1,000 casualties. And incredibly, sadly, there would be one more. It came from the Ninth Corps, the division led by Brigadier General George Getty. It was now after 5 p.m. The attack of mercifully one brigade led by Colonel Rush Hawkins was made in the shadows an eerie backdrop of twilight. Aimed at the Confederate right flank, terrain, darkness, and southern fire drove it to the ground as well. Seven divisional attacks, 18 brigades. In six hours of combat, not one man had even touched the stone wall. Back across the Rappahannock, Ambrose Burnside was not fully aware of the disaster to men and morale, but his army would suffer 12,653 casualties that day. 7,000 of them were in front of the wall at the foot of Marie's Heights. There, in some places, survivors had piled the dead in front of them to catch Confederate bullets. Where McClellan never knew when to start, Burnside never knew when to stop. Incredibly, during the evening, he planned to renew attacks at first light the next day. And he announced that he personally would lead his old Ninth Corps until his staff and lieutenants talked him out of it. For those survivors trapped on the plain in front of the stone wall, the night of the 13th, 14th was something out of the worst nightmare one could conjure. While temperatures dropped, the plain was filled with the pitiful cries for water, mother, home, and help. A lieutenant colonel of the 20th Maine was there. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain spent the night between two dead men. He used a third for a pillow and used the flap of a dead man's overcoat to keep him from freezing. In his scholarly mind from Bowdoin, college in Maine, he tried to describe the unearthly sounds he heard. A smothered moan that seemed to come from distances beyond reach of the natural senses, as if a thousand discords were flowing together in a keynote, weird, unearthly, terrible to hear and bear, yet startling with its nearness some with delirious, dreamy voices murmuring loved ones' names, as if the dearest were bending over them, and underneath, all the time, that deep bass note from closed lips, too hopeless or too heroic to articulate their agony. There was something else that night that was unearthly. Soldiers witnessed the extremely rare display of the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights. Confederates interpreted the heavenly light show as the Almighty celebrating yet another Southern victory. The next day, the 14th, the plain before the stone wall was still a no-man's land. And in that ghastly scenario, a reported incident by South Carolina Brigadier General Joseph Kershaw the story goes that on that day, with so many still in all forms of distress, one Confederate soldier was moved to aid the enemy. 
no longer able to ignore the cries of those in blue on the other side of the stone wall. 19-year-old Sergeant Richard Kirkland, Company G, 2nd South Carolina, the fifth son of a moderately wealthy family from the Flat Rock community down in the Kershaw District of South Carolina, decided he had to do something. In response to the countless suffering calls for water, he went to his commanding officer, Kershaw, and asked permission to show a white flag, go over the wall with canteens, and give water to as many as he could who had been exposed throughout that long, cold night. Concerned that Kirkland's white flag might be interpreted as a flag of truce and fearful that the South Carolinian would be shot, Kershaw refused the request. But later reluctantly agreed to allow Kirkland, at his own peril, to go over the wall and give aid. And so again, as the story goes, Kirkland gathered canteens from fellow common soldiers, braced himself against the wall, and then stood and began to make his way over the wall. Federal skirmishers may well have been startled to see a Confederate soldier reveal himself in such way, But Kirkland went over the wall and made his way to the closest Union wounded soldier. Kneeling, he raised a head, pressed a canteen to parched lips, and tried to bring comfort. Then on to another, and another. While he did so, and with both Union and Confederate soldiers now aware of his intent, fire ceased in this part of the battlefield. And for an hour and a half, Richard Kirkland was an oasis of humanity in the midst of civil war. Some say Kirkland made only one visit. Some say multiple. But if indeed this act took place and was performed by the sergeant from South Carolina, there was most certainly one future event. Some nine months later, September the 20th, 1863, at Chickamauga in northwestern Georgia, Richard Kirkland was hit in the chest and told his comrades, Save yourself until Pa died right. Dead at 19 years of age. If one visits the battlefield at Fredericksburg today, you'll find a memorial to the man known as the Angel of Marie's Heights. Erected in 1965, its plaque reads, A hero of benevolence at the risk of his own life, He gave his enemy drink at Fredericksburg. The event, real or fancied, no question, is a moving story. One that I personally would love to find true. But the documentation simply isn't there. The monument indeed, quite possibly. A monument to a myth. But one thing was distinctly clear and documented at Fredericksburg. The Union Army of the Potomac suffered a severe setback. Though the Confederate victory there was not decisive, it was significant. Another Union drive on Richmond had been stopped. Lee in defense had suffered only some 4,201 casualties, but as Jackson prophesied before the battle, the Army of Northern Virginia could not follow its victory up. During the night of the 15th, the Union Army of the Potomac quietly slipped back across the Rappahannock, and the precious pontoons, whose late arrival condemned so many men, were cut 
from their moorings. When news of the defeat reached Washington City and the lopsided casualties were reported, a mortified Abraham Lincoln said, If there is a worse place than hell, then I am surely in it. In the coming weeks and months after battle, the two sides eyeballed one another. And when they did, a strange thing happened. Mortal enemies on the 13th of December were reminded that they spoke the same language, prayed to the same God, and were all Americans. And so, with the two armies encamped so close to one another, common soldiers began to act in ways that, regardless of century and technology, in ways that have been repeated in countless wars and centuries. They reached out to one another. They traded hand-carved boats with makeshift masts and sails, carried tobacco to the east bank, and those same vessels returned with cargoes of coffee. They also traded conversation. In short, they fraternized. And in addition to trade, They shared a love for music. As the story once again goes, during those cold, miserable days after the battle, sometime in perhaps late December or during the dead of winter, a Union band one late afternoon, in an attempt to raise sagging federal morale, marched through the Union camps east of the Rappahannock and played from their brass instruments the same tunes farther Abraham, we are coming, Battle Hymn of the Republic, Star-Spangled Banner, Hail Columbia, Yankee Doodle. And indeed, as their impromptu concert continued, in my mind's eye, I can imagine that as the sun set, the horizon was painted with the bright golds, oranges, and fuchsias that are a part of winter sunsets even today. And as the story goes, some of the Union musicians looked across the Rappahannock and noticed that their music had drawn hundreds of Confederate soldiers. One of them rose and shouted across the river, All right, play some iron. And to that request, the Union band broke into Dixie, the Bonnie Blue Flag, and other Southern tunes. And the story continues that the soldiers of both sides were caught up in the moment, and some three to four thousand stood facing one another, lifting their voices. For a few sweet moments, the war seemingly a universe away. And then again, in my mind's eye, with the winter sun slipping out of sight, and the colors of the sunset now fading into lavenders and purples, the band decided to end their concert with one last song. They played Home Sweet Home and grown men, battle-hardened veterans, tried to sing, but the words gave way to knots in throats. As popular historian Bruce Catton wrote of the reported incident, there wasn't a dry eye on the Rappahannock. Concert over. The sun beneath the horizon, soldiers of both armies drifted back to their assigned post, their camps, and did so wondering, how much longer would the war continue? How much longer would they be away from families and loved ones? In the first months of 1863, 
In the winter of 1862-63, many would have been staggered by the realization that the killing would drag on for two and a half more years. All of that made even more tragic when one takes note of a Union soldier's quip about his enemy across the Rappahannock. When we weren't killing each other, we was the best of friends. Next time we gather, we'll explore the world of 19th century medicine. Though deemed barbaric by 21st century standards, we'll document the medicines and procedures that at the time hoped to give soldiers a chance to survive battlefield wounds and diseases. Next time up, the story of medicine during the American Civil War. It's always a wonderful bit of news to receive information that we have a new patron and all of us at threads from the national tapestry welcome Hassan from Dearborn Michigan thank you so much for what you are doing to help us deeply appreciated this is Fred Kiger thank you for listening This podcast is sponsored by The Badge Maker, your go-to source for American Civil War Corps badges and other handmade, American-made historical reproductions. Contact the proprietor, Joseph Valicenti, and place your orders at www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com. That's www.civilwarcorpsbadges.com.